Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I have a, a word that I'd like to share with you this morning. It's been rolling around in my heart ever since last week. Um, last week, Pastor Andreas ministered to us. And he spoke about the promises of God. Uh, in fact, the title of his message was Living in the Power of God's Promises. And really, it was an awakening, I hope, for, for all of us, to and, and, and a call to realize that God has promised so much in who he is, in his nature, in his benevolence, in his goodness, and in everything he's made available to us. He's really promised so much. And it's, it's as though there's a call to say, come step into so more than what you have. Uh, I've got so much more than what you're currently experiencing. But there's two statements that Pastor Andreas made that have, that have stuck with me, that have resonated with me all week. And that kind of bring me right back to a foundational place, to uh, a starting point, if you like. And I would like to actually spend this morning bringing all of us back to that foundational place, to that starting point, as we talk about and we think about the promises of God. So here's what Pastor Andrea said. He said this, unlocking the power in God's promises takes wisdom and skill, but most of all, it takes an intimate relationship with God. It takes wisdom and skill, but most of all, it takes an intimate relationship with God. He also said those who walk in the promises of God have an awakened soul that's been restored by the word of God. In other words, there's a, an interactive uh, process. Something has happened in the hearts of, of certain people that have enabled them to not only know about or understand the promises of God, but lay hold of them in such a way that they become active and experiential in their lives. They're eating the good of them. They're enjoying the fruit of everything that God has promised. Now, it's many, most of us sitting here that I know of, we know the Lord. We've been disciples or believers for many years. Um, and that's wonderful. We have an idea of many of God's promises. And we're so grateful and glad that, they're, that they are there and available to us. But I know that for myself and for many of us, walking in the fullness of all of them is still something that lies out there. It's... I know that it's there. I know it's available, but I haven't yet attained the place in my understanding and in my faith where certain promises have become experiential to me. Now, God doesn't make promises just so that, you know, they can they can hang around out there. His desire is to draw us into them. I want you to imagine for a moment you're traveling to a foreign country that is famed for any particular thing. It could be, you know, for I'm going to this place. And they're known for beautiful tablecloths or for their patisserie or uh, maybe it's for their African decor or whatever it may be. It's one thing to know that, 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 that for example, uh, let's go with, with cake. Cake is just always a relevant example. I can go to a place, I can go to an area that I know is famed for their cake. But it's another thing when you have a local person to take you to the right place to make sure that you get the full and the best experience. Here's an example I want to give. 
Years ago, I had the joy and the privilege of traveling through some places in Europe, and one of the, the cities I stopped in was the city of Vienna in Austria. And I got to see the Schönbrunn Palace, and I got to go to many, you know, the, the opera house where Mozart conducted many of his, uh, his, his, his arias in the aria. And he, you know, I got to see these wonderful places, and I got to go to one of the, you know, some of the famous coffee shops. One of the things Vienna is, is famous for is their schnitzels. I went to a place called Schnitzel House, which is uh, their equivalent of McDonald's or uh, Spur. And you go and you get a plate, which is the size of your head, which you can't really see because the schnitzel that they put on top of it is bigger than the plate all around, on top of which they dump a whole bunch of the most amazing chips and mayonnaise, the most awesome mayonnaise. It was one of the best schnitzels I've ever had. But then I went to a coffee shop and I had uh, a, a, what they call uh, a Zagertorte. It's a, it's, a, it's a German cake. Uh, you've got to go to Vienna, yeah? And you've got to have the Zagertorte, which is dense chocolate cake with sort of apricot jam inside covered with, with chocolate um, uh, not fondant, ganache. Uh, ganache. Thank you. And uh, I must be honest, my experience of that is that I paid a fortune for it and it wasn't very good. I didn't enjoy it. It looked amazing, but it was dry and it was lousy. Now, contrast that with my mother's experience of Vienna. She went many years ago and there was a friend that used to work with her. Her name was Sylvia and she relocated to Austria, very close to Vienna. She married a, a Viennese man and they lived just outside the city on a little small holding. They had their own little farm. And my mom went to go and stay with them for a few nights. Now, when this guy took them into Vienna for some Zakertorti, he took them to a particular coffee shop, sat them down and said, here, you need to taste this. And he bought it for them. And then he said, you need to taste this. And he bought that for them. And he needed to taste this. And you've got to try the apple pie. And you've got to try this. And you've got to try that. And there were about six or seven slices of cakes and tarts and pies on the table, all paid for, all covered. And my folks said it was the most delicious stuff they'd ever eaten. But they had no room for supper after that. And they'd cooked it. So we have these, these contrasting experiences. Both my mom and I were in the same place. But there was a big difference. I knew that in Vienna, I needed to have this slice of chocolate cake, but I didn't really know where to go, who to order it from, what I found the tourist trap, whereas the local knew exactly where to take my mother, he knew exactly what to buy for them. And not only did he take them to the right place, he provided the stuff in abundance. And it's kind of, it, 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 it it's one. So what the point I'm making is it's one thing to, when we look at the promises of God, to know that they're available, to know what's there, to hear these wonderful stories about the chocolate cake, if you like. But it's an altogether different story to actually know the one who can lead you to the right place to, to find the best piece of pie or cake for you, according to what you need, according to your taste. And to not only take you to that place, but to provide you with the means to partake of it. Do you understand the difference in the analogies? The one is sort of going at it gung-ho as best as I can, because I know there's something out there that, that everyone tells me is so amazing. Uh, but yet I find that when I go at it like that, my experience is dry. Whereas if I allow 
a local, if I allow somebody to take me to it and through it, but the experience is entirely different. Not only that, but it costs me nothing. All the cost has been taken care of. The point is this, there's a difference between knowing about something or someone and really knowing someone or something intimately. Now, here's where we come back to the promises of God. It's one thing to know about them. It's a different thing to intimately know. Another good example is all of you know how to play the piano. How do you play the piano? Well, you push the keys down and it makes noise. That's how you play piano. It's as simple as that. How many of you can actually do it? Well, we can all make the noise, but in terms of getting beautiful melody out with the right rhythm, we've got to know what notes to press, when to press them, how hard to press them. There's skill involved. Now, my five-year-old is utterly convinced fully that she knows how to play the piano. And the truth is, she is right and wrong all at the same time. She's right because she understands the logistics of it. She sits down behind the piano and she does this and sings merrily and has to touch the very bottom note and has to touch the very top note on the keyboard because that's all part of it. And that's how she plays the piano. Is it much good to anyone else in the room? Debatable. You see, to play it with any skill, to make it work for you, requires coordination. It requires training. And it's the same with the promises of God. It's one thing to know about them, but it's an altogether different thing to walk in them. And what is the good of just knowing about them if we can't walk in them? You know, the peace of God, the joy of the Lord. Are these not promises from God? God promises us peace, yet so many of us are filled with fear and anxiety. God promises us joy, but yet so many of us are filled with depression and we're struggling with our emotional health. God promises to lead us with by his spirit. Some of us don't know which way to go. God promises us the power to and deliverance from addiction and from depression, and, but yet so many of us are trapped in states that are far below what God has promised us. The truth is, knowing about the promises is not enough. There is a key that is necessary. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Peter. It's going to be right near the back of your Bible. I'm reading from the New King James. 2 Peter, chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to read from verse 2. And this is what it has to say. Peter is writing and he says, the grace and peace, sorry, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and by glory and virtue, by which have been made to us or given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's pause there for a moment. I said to you as we started reading the scripture that there is a key to unlocking and walking in the power of the promises of God. Having read that, can anybody tell me what the key is? Knowledge. Knowledge. Thank you, Ron. Now, 
understanding that knowledge is the key is kind of counterintuitive to everything I've said so far, isn't it? Because all I've said is it's one thing to know about the promises, but it's a different thing to walk in them. And here is where understanding a little bit deeper the, 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 the words that are being used in the original text becomes incredibly valuable. Years ago, I discovered that in the Greek, they have two words for the word knowledge. And I have so often seen, gone back to scripture with this understanding to check out which one is used in which context to understand the real heart and the real depth of what, what the author is trying to communicate. Now, the two words are as follows. The first one is gnosis. It's G-N-O-S-I-S. And that is information. It is knowledge or understanding with my mind. I can read something. I can understand it. I have an idea of what it is. Most people, most believers have a gnosis, a head knowledge or an understanding of the promises of God. God promises me joy. He promises me peace. He promises me provision, protection, grace, all of these things. I know that. But yet the evidence in their lives shows that all they have is a knowledge of the thing, of the promise. They have yet to enter into the other realm of knowledge, which in the Greek is the word epignosis, E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, epignosis. And that is what we, what many people would call revelation knowledge or heart knowledge. It is knowledge that has moved beyond just a mental understanding and has found practical outworking. It has found experience in the heart of the it has come alive. Revelation knowledge, I looked up the definition this morning and they say it's a religious term that speaks of knowledge that comes through divine inspiration. In other words, it's not just about the knowledge that is attained, it's about the source from which the knowledge is attained. It's one thing to say that, to, to have somebody to say to you, it's all right, all your needs will be met. That's okay. You have that need. That's okay. You know, God will meet your need. It's an altogether different thing when someone comes up to you and said, you know what? God spoke to me. I'm here to meet your need. It's one has now become very experiential when I'm actually holding that, that, that envelope of cash in my hand. Suddenly I, I think, and I feel, and I understand that very, very differently. Now I want to go back over this portion of scripture and I'm going to read it again. And I want you to, Highlight what these words mean. Verse 5, once again. Sorry, no, sorry. We're going to read verse 2 once again. Grace and peace, these are promises from God, be multiplied to you in the epignosis, the revelation knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Grace can only work in my life. Peace can only be found in my heart to the degree that I have a real heart connection and revelation of the nature and the person of God and of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, as his living power has been given to us or has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the epignosis, the revelation knowledge of him who called us by virtue. Listen to this. Knowledge is the key, 
But the knowledge that the scripture here is speaking about is not knowledge necessarily of the promise. It is knowledge of the promise giver. Jesus is the promise giver. He is the promise and he is the fulfillment of the promise. It is all wrapped up in and with him. In other words, this becomes a deeply personal thing. Let's carry on. I want to read, jump now to verse five, okay? Because we've spoken about the revelation knowledge and, and that by which we've given to us all these great promises that through these we may be partakers of the divine knowledge. Then he goes on to verse five and he says this, but for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. Now here, this word for knowledge is the word gnosis. It is understanding. And to knowledge, understanding, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither unfruitful. Now there's a big word. Neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge, in the epignosis, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me sum up for you what Peter is saying here. He's really saying your intimacy, the, the real experience of your relationship with Jesus Christ will enable you and, 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 and empower you to enter into and experience the promises of God. And as you do so, give yourself to knowledge, to learning more about them so that you may grow in understanding that your experience also may grow. I love this portion of scripture because it talks about revelation that, that impacts me in a deep, tangible way that the power and the, the effectiveness of everything God promises me is experienced in my life. And he also gives me the key that as I study about it, as I give myself to learning more and more, so my experience also will grow. Folks, what is the point of knowledge that doesn't produce any fruit? What's the point? But you see, the enemy knows that if he can keep us occupied with general trivia, with interesting facts, with gossip, we remain unfruitful in the knowledge of God and his promises. Did you get that? You see, the enemy... How much time do we spend on these devices just looking up things and checking up general trivia and knowing this and knowing that? And it's all interesting stuff. How much of it actually changes our lives? How much of our time spent like this on a Sunday morning really produces change in our hearts? How much time in, are we really connecting with the word in that real tangible way? Or are we allowing interesting facts to keep us occupied? but out of the full experience of the person of Jesus Christ. In the same way that me, that I have a musical gift, I praise God, have a gift to be able to make music. I play the guitar, I play the piano, I play the drums. As much as I have that gift, I need to put time in to cultivate that gift so I'm able to grow in it and to work it effectively. You may have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Praise God. I have the gift for music. But unless I give time to my gift, it profits me nothing. And unless you are giving yourself to your relationship with Jesus, what is it going to get you at the end of the day? I wonder sometimes how believers think, how people think where they want to be saved 
so that they can spend eternity with somebody they can't devote five minutes to in the day. How does that make any logical sense? I want to give myself to an eternity with somebody I couldn't be bothered with every other day of my life. It makes no sense. Oh, God, help us. Now, going back to this portion of scripture in 2 Peter, there's a few points that I want to pull out before I move on. And here, here they are. First one is this. Grace and peace come through knowledge, through revelation. These are the fruit of an intimate relationship with Jesus. And why are these two fruit mentioned? Well, because these are the means by which our hearts are established and we lay hold of God's enabling ability to press in and grow in our faith, in our understanding, and in our experience. Grace and peace come through revelation knowledge. What is grace? Grace is the person and the power of Christ himself meeting, at us, meeting us at our point of need. That is what grace is. Grace is not just favor. Grace is a power that enables us to lay hold of God's power and his promises as it works within our hearts and lives to make it effective and experiential. And peace, peace is the fruit of the presence of the Prince of Peace. You cannot have true peace without the presence of the Prince. And if we're going to live life and walk in a state of peace where we are not stressed out and worried about tomorrow and what's going on around us, we're not going to do that through meditation, trying to separate ourselves. We have a, a very much an escapist mentality today. I just want to get away from that for a, for a while so I can center myself again. You know what? You go. That's fine. You can do that, and that's good. And you know what? Truth be told, we all need that from time to time. But what happens when you come back again? You know, can you live in a state of perpetual peace? This peace and our experience of grace comes through intimate knowledge, time spent with Jesus. The second point I want to make is this. No gift of God, no promise of God, no word from God is ever devoid of power. I want you to get that in your heart. When God gives you a promise, there is power within that word to fulfill it and to make it real. If we can only believe it and give ourselves to it. There is no word, there is no promise, there is no gift that God gives that doesn't have within it the power to create and to effect what God has sent it out to do, to produce in us and through us the desired result. And because it's his power that makes the difference, amen? It's God's power that does the work. You didn't save yourself, Jesus saved you. The apostles, and we hear these wonderful stories of how they healed so many people. They didn't heal the people. Jesus healed the people. They get the glory in the sense that they are the ones who are privileged to work and co-labor with Jesus in bringing this about. But God does it. You cannot change yourself. You and I are powerless to do it. You cannot change yourself any more than a zebra can change his stripes or a leopard can change his spots. God can, though. Isaiah 55, 11 says, it is the same with my word. I send it out. It always produces fruit. Always. It will accomplish what I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So no word from God is devoid of power. Number three, revelation knowledge is the key that unlocks and makes this power available and effective in our lives. It is not knowledge about the power. 
but it is a deep knowledge of the person of Jesus, allowing him to work that makes the power available. Jesus is the power. He is the power carrier. He is the promise giver. He is the word. He is the fulfillment of the word. Do you understand how this is all connected, not to a mental understanding of what's available, but to an intimate relationship with the person who is that very word? And finally, point number four, God's promises are intended to make us partakers of his divine nature. Now, when we say this word divine nature, what do we generally think of? We think that the nature of God is love. The nature of God is joy, peace, patience. You could go to the fruit of the spirit. But let me ask you a few questions. Is it in the nature of God to succumb to temptation? No. Is it in the nature of God to walk in victory over sin? Yes. Is it in the nature of God to prosper in everything he does? Yes. Is it in the nature of God to bring healing and, and restoration and honor wherever his presence is honored? Yes. This is why by the effectual working of these promises of his nature, we become partakers of his nature and thereby able to escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. Do you see how beautiful that principle is? We become partakers of the very victorious, overcoming power, nature that is God. He brings us into that realm and into a completely different experience. Here's the point, folks. Many of us approach the promises of God like my five-year-old approaches playing the piano. We know how to do it, but can we do it? We know about them. We say, thank you, Jesus, for them. But have we really understood and entered into the experience of those promises? Let me ask you, to what level or degree are God's promises working in your life? How do we measure that? To what degree are they producing fruit? I'm talking about his grace. I'm talking about his peace. I'm talking about the nature of Christ, soul formation. I'm talking about victory and overcoming sin. To what degree are God's promises is the person of Christ producing fruit in your life? I've got a few more portions of scripture for you. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke. Chapter 13, Luke chapter 13. I'm going to read from verses 6 to verse 9 from the New King James. Read it with me. Luke, six, uh, Luke 13, verses 6 to 9. It reads as follows. He spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Why does it waste space? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, this parable if you understand the context and the flow of what's being communicated here, 
is focusing on, on the principles of repentance and God's mercy in judgment. But we can extrapolate the same principle from it that I'm sharing with you today. You see, the word of God, the promises of God are like a seed or a young tree that God plants in our hearts. You see, God doesn't give us full trees. He gives us seeds. That's one of the points that Pastor Andreas made last week. Every promise of God is a seed. Every the, the grace of God comes to us in, in full power, but in seed form. We need to learn how to work it and, 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 and go roll with it and wrestle with it. And as we as we do with Jesus in prayer and in his word. But the point is this. God expects fruit. When he sent his son as the seed into this world, what did he send Jesus for? To produce fruit, a wonderful harvest of souls. We've already seen Isaiah 55 that God's word never returns to him empty. When he gives a promise, he expects results. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is responsible for keeping our hearts? So the, 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 the owner of this garden, uh, this orchard came and he said to the keeper, this tree is not producing fruit. Pull it up. And the keeper said to him, give it a bit more time. Let me fertilize it. Let me dig around it. Let me. He wasn't apathetic. He didn't just say, ah, give it another year. Maybe something will happen. He said, give it a bit more time, but I'm going to give attention to this now. I'm going to change my approach towards this tree. And let's see if I change, if in changing my approach, we can produce different fruit. If not, fine, we'll cut it down. Then it really is a useless tree, good for nothing. You see, the promises of God, the, the, the question I have is this. Who is responsible? Who is the keeper of your heart? Who is the one responsible in your life for making sure that the word of God, that the promises of God produce fruit in your life? Can, does anybody know? Well, some of you will say, well, that's Jesus' job. That's the role of Jesus. Others will say, that's my job. Let me read you a couple of portions of scripture. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Who is that speaking to? It's speaking to you and to me. It's saying that I have a responsibility to keep my heart. But yet Psalm 121 verse 3 says, he, speaking of God, will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. <laughs> and so we have this idea that God keeps us. And that we are, are required also to keep and to tend the state of our hearts. Isaiah 26 verse 3, I think, brings these two together beautifully. It says this, you will keep him in perfect peace, speaking of God, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, within this question that I've asked you folks of who is responsible for tending the garden of your heart, who is responsible for producing fruit in your life? That question, within that question, lies one of the most profound and beautiful mysteries within the gospel, within all of scripture. Here's the mystery. God expects you to produce fruit with what he has given you, knowing that you are powerless to do it. <laughs> what a mystery. God expects fruit from you and I, fruit of his promises, fruit of his word, fruit of everything that he has given us. He expects results. 
that nothing he has given to us will return to him void, but yet knows that you and I, within our own ability, are powerless to produce any fruit. Isn't that incredible? So what's the solution? Last portion of scripture uh, I want to focus on today is comes from John chapter 15. A couple of other verses I'll read to you after that, but really this is where this is where this all starts coming back to that foundational place that I was talking about right at the start of my message. John 15 verse 1 to 8, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. We have another parable. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What do you think the vine dresser is after? What do you think he's after? He's after fruit. He's after seeing evidence. Verse 3, you are already clean because the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Folks, in that one verse is the crux of everything I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. God has given you wonderful promises. God has given you wonderful grace and so many rich and beautiful things for you to enjoy as a believer. Not only for yourself, but that you may shine the light of Jesus and be an effective disciple. And yet you are powerless to produce any of those things in your own life apart from him. You see, you and I are the branch. That's what Jesus says. He is the vine. We are the branches. But he says that. Neither can you, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, Jesus himself is that revelation, that epignosis, that experience that empowers and makes alive every promise and every word of God. He goes on. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. There's much fruit. In other words, if we get this one thing right, this abiding thing right, the fruit flows naturally. Remember years ago, I gave the example. You go into a vineyard and you listen very carefully. Do you ever hear a vine straining to produce fruit? Here's a grape. Two more. No. That's not how it works. But yet that's how we try and do spiritual life. We try and put in effort and put in force to make things happen, to produce fruit. But a vine, the branches simply rest in the vine. And the natural outward, they allow the sap to flow. They allow the life to flow, the, the power, the grace to flow. And the natural result of that is fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. Wow. Wow. By this, Jesus says, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Much fruit. Wherever you are, say much fruit. That is what God is after in your heart and in your life. You see, although the branch is expected to produce the fruit, it is utterly dependent on the vine to do so. And this is how this mystery works. Jesus himself is the promiser 
He is the promise and he is the fulfillment of every promise. Our deep, intimate, experiential knowledge of him is what unlocks and empowers every promise that God has ever given to us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all of the promises of God in him, in Jesus, are yes, and in him are amen, in other words, effective, to the glory of God through us. Did you get that? Every promise that God has made in him is yes. In him, we say amen. In him and through us, God gets the glory. You see, as I look, as I look to God to lead me in shepherding his beloved sheep into the pastures of his life-giving grace, I'm acutely aware that all I can do is keep leading and pointing the sheep into his presence again and again and again. That is the place where gnosis becomes epignosis. That is the place where information becomes life experience. That is the place where the word of God becomes alive, vital, and light to us. Shines light on our path, shines light on our hearts, giving us understanding and true spiritual understanding. That is the place where true fruitfulness begins. And that is why, as I close off, Paul prays this prayer, and I'm going to pray this prayer over you as well. He prays it over the Ephesians, and he says this. Just where you are, I want you to open your heart to this prayer as I pray it over you. My Father God, I want to thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you withhold none of who you are and nothing at all from us, but you have truly given us wonderful promises that we may walk in them, that we may know them, that they may be experiential in our lives, taking us from one level of glory to another. And my prayer today is in accordance with the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 17. I pray, Heavenly Father, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Father of glory that you may give to each one of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are. That the eyes of our understanding of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know deeply, experientially, tangibly the hope of your calling and the riches of your glory and of the wonderful inheritance that we have as the saints and that we may truly partake of and experience the exceeding greatness of your power toward us as we believe you and as we trust you lord god thank you for everything you've made available to us lord forgive us for where we have chased after what you can do where we have just longed for our own personal breakthroughs, forgetting that it all comes through you and you alone. You cannot be separated from your word. Your promises are never isolated from your person. Give us hearts, Lord God, I pray, that long to know you, Jesus, deeply, experientially, that the peace that you bring and the grace that you give attain a completely new dimension in our lives, Lord God, that we may experience your power, that we may experience your promises for deliverance, for grace, for overcoming power, for healing in every area of our lives. 
So we thank you for this word to us this morning, Lord God. May it serve as inspiration to draw deeply from the vine, to rest in you, Lord Jesus, trust in you with all our hearts, that we may see and experience the fullness of all that you've come to give us, come to fruition in our lives. I pray that today in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.